You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to, to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This is God's word. This is a special morning, special day as we gather as God's family, and also special because we finish up our study through the first and second letter from Paul to the Thessalonian Christians. And what a great topic to have our young ones with us, where we teach it's never too early to get a job, okay? <laughs> it's never too early. Uh, well, it is fun to finish up this, this, this uh, lesson and this study in, uh, in this topic. Uh, Paul has been clear to instruct these new Christians on how to live, how to apply the gospel to their life. Uh, and what we see in this big theme is he's been clear that we should not try to predict when Jesus is going to return. We shouldn't waste our time on speculations and signs of his return. Rather, he encourages us how to live as people who are ready how to live as people that are expecting his return, to be excited, joyful, cheerful, and longing for his return, and growing in our faith as we wait for him. But for just a moment, for the sake of, of this morning and finishing up our lesson, if I ask you to forget everything that we were taught in the next last three months, and imagine that you could know for sure. You could know for sure uh, when Jesus was coming back. And imagine that you knew, and I told you, and you believe this, that he's coming back tomorrow, tomorrow around lunchtime. What would you do in the next 24 hours? What would you do in the next 24 hours if you knew that Jesus was going to return tomorrow around lunchtime? Any, anyone want to share? Any young ones with us? They'd love to share when we gather in these times. Someone in there? Yeah, Noah? Throw away everything. <laughs> Get rid of my possessions. You don't, you don't need them anymore. Even mom and dad's stuff? All right, cool. Eli, what about you, Eli? Well, not brush my teeth. Not brush your teeth, <laughs> says the son of a dentist. Good. Yeah, you two there, one at a time. Scream with joy. And then what? Run around preaching the gospel. Yes. 
Amen, sister. I love it. Now, let me ask you adults. Would you go to work tomorrow? No. Would you go to school, kids? No. Uh, would you study? If Jesus was coming back tomorrow at noon, would you study for the test on Friday? No. Would you make progress on that DIY project in your house? Uh, would you abandon all possessions like Noah and go to Mount Lemon and wait for Jesus' return so you could greet him? No. You guys are playing right into my, my preaching this morning. This is great. You see, early in the church, uh, people were asking these same, same questions. Uh, and they were answering this question in different ways. What do we do if Jesus returns tomorrow? And Paul is addressing a church a long time ago that were asking this question. How would you live if Jesus was coming back very, very soon? And some people, when they thought about Jesus' return, they sold all that they had. They quit their job. They stopped with their responsibilities. They gave up everything. They abandoned all of their, their occupation, their commitments, and they went to a high place, and they waited for Jesus' return. And then when they found out that Jesus wasn't coming back, they had to go back to their town and they didn't have a job and they didn't have any of their possessions and they forsook all of their responsibilities. And now they are dependent on others and kind of feeling like, well, now I need all of your help. What do you do if Jesus is coming back? It's like bathing your children before soccer practice. It just doesn't make any sense. But let me tell you something. Here's what Paul says. Here is how Paul responds to those who had given up all that they had and stopped going to work and stopped going to school and sold their possessions and went to a tall place just to wait in idleness for Jesus' return. Here's what he says. Go to work. Go to school. Study for that test. Finish that DIY project. Clean your room. Make your plans. Live your life as followers of Jesus in your job and fulfilling all of your responsibilities until he comes. All of you are wrong, except for the one who said they were going to share the gospel, right? <laughs> in his first letter, Paul encouraged these people to go to work, and to live their lives, fulfilling their responsibilities. And it's clear that some did not take heed of his warning and instruction, so he's got to say it again. And they didn't work because they thought, well, Jesus is coming back very soon. Why give ourselves to these responsibilities? And there were three sets of people, really, in, the, in this time, a long time ago, that were causing trouble. Three different kinds of people that were making peace in the church very difficult to enjoy. Three different kinds of people that were distorting the truth. One kind of person was those who were persecuting the church. They were the ones that were threatening the church with words and actions. Another kind of people were the people that were uh, confusing the church by teaching lies about Jesus. They were false teachers. And the third group of people that were making it difficult for Christians were the loafers. Now, that's a word we don't hear very often, but I heard it all the time growing up as a young boy. That's right, loafers. Do you know what it means? What's a loafer? It's people that sit around in the house like a loaf of bread. I think that's, I think that's where they got it. Not a common word, but this is, what, this is a person who is stirring up trouble in the church. 
is a lazy person, lays, all, lays around, binges on junk food, watches TV all day, sleeps in, uh, not taking care of their responsibilities, depending on others for the care of their everyday needs. And Paul speaks into that, and that's where we find ourselves in this passage today. Now, I want to frame our time with the definition of work. Because what is work? Let me explain what work is. Work is any physical or mental effort that cultivates or maintains God's creation. This is from a pastor friend of mine up in Phoenix named Jim Mullins. It is any kind of physical or mental effort that cultivates and maintains God's creation. Why is it important to think of work in this way? Because if we talk about work, automatically the young people in our church think, well, this isn't a sermon for me. I don't have a job. Why give my attention to a sermon about where a third of our congregation is under 10 years old? For others, there are some of you in a re- that are in a, a retirement stage in your life. And you feel that a sermon about work maybe makes you feel it's not about you, or it makes you feel regret of how, well, I wish I would have had a chance to apply these principles 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago. And then there's the stay-at-home parents. Even though you labor all day, it isn't viewed technically as employment, and therefore categorized, not categorized in the modern view of work. And so you think, well, how does a sermon on work apply to me? Maybe there's those that are unemployed among us, and so a sermon on work makes you just reminded of the grief and anxiety that you have over your struggle and situation. But if we look at work in this way, we see that no one is exempt, that we all have, we all put forth mental and physical effort to cultivate and maintain the world that God has given to us, whether it's our bedroom as we make our bed or it's in the office where we create and produce. Work was designed by God and given to humankind for a couple reasons. Now, actually, it's dozens of reasons, but for today in our passage, we look at two. I cut off one point for the sake of getting getting it done quicker. Here is a reason that God has gifted us with a vocation of work, with the opportunity to work. One is to participate in the creative work of God. We work. Why? To imitate God, who is the creator, who is the worker. And here's how Paul answers the question as to why we are to be people who work. Because it's part of God's story. His true story of the whole world. Handed down through tradition of scripture, he tells us the story of work. And it begins with the very beginning in the story, in the very beginning in the book of Genesis. Genesis tells us that God created the material world. He created the material world, and not only did he create it, but he loves it, and he calls it good. And then he brings humankind into it to maintain it, to cultivate it. To, to, to take the things that God has created and to make new things out of them so that we would enjoy them. And in the biblical concept of work, work is intrinsically good. Giving our energy to cultivating and maintaining God's creation is a good thing. Not because of what it produces primarily, but because of who it reflects. It reflects God. And so when we fix a broken chair, we bring order and safety back to God's created world. When we clean our room, we bring peace out of chaos. When we we trim tree branches, we enable the flourishing of a tree that brings forth more fruit and shade and beauty for us to enjoy. Our passage says there are some who walk in darkness, 
rather than in the fullness of God's story. There are some who have forsaken their work or the, the gift of being able to create and maintain God's creation. There are some who have forsaken that. And when they're doing that, they are being unfaithful to live in the story that God has, has made. Paul says that in verse 6. The word walk, right? He says some walk in idleness. The word walk is a regular word used in the New Testament to basically describe the way that we live, the way we go about our life in the, light, the journey of life and how we journey through our life. It's our behaviors, it's our attitudes, it's our ambitions, in our work, in our home, in our play, with all of our hopes and dreams. It's all of it. And what our passage has in mind is to be mindful of the way that we work so that we can live in such a way that pleases God, that sings his praises, that imitates him. And so young and old who are with us, when we give our energy to cultivating, maintaining God's creation, we're being like him. We're singing his praises. We're glorifying him just by imitating who he is. Therefore, work is not just a privilege and a responsibility. That's why Paul says work is a command. Work is a command to put forth activity both mentally and physically to maintaining and cultivating God's creation is a command to obey. Paul mentions it three times in this passage. He says, he says I command you to walk in such a way. See, you could, you could mindlessly take out the garbage or you could take out the garbage delighting in your participation in the work of God. You can make your bed and clean your room and, and, or, or clean the dishes, or mumbling under your breath and asking yourselves, why do I have to do this? Or you can make your bed, clean your room, clean the dishes, delighting in your participation in the creative work of God. I'm trying, parents. I'm trying the best I can for you, okay? You see, we, can, we, all, we all have responsibility many of which that we don't enjoy doing, but we can see it in a different way, that when we put forth energy to making something clean or nice or bringing order to chaos, we can see it as our direct participation in the image of God. What a privilege, what a great joy to have that we get to be like God. Another reason that God has created work for us is, is this reason, to express sacrificial love for others. This point is really seen most clear as Paul sets before the Christians, he sets forth his own example for how he works. He says, when we were with you, we had the right, we had the right to expect you to take care of us. By the virtue of our office and our ministry, we were ministering to you, and we could have claimed our right for you to take care of our lodging and our food and our comfort, but we didn't claim any of that. Instead, we worked day and night so that we would not be a burden to any of you. And he reminds them of, with this saying, if you're not willing to work, then you shouldn't eat. Here, Paul likely repeats a, 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 probably a phrase that has been used hundreds of times by hardworking men and women at the time. And, and then he encourages us, do not be weary in doing good. You see, do not forsake walking in obedience to God by, by engaging in work. And, and, and if you don't work, then you shouldn't reap the benefits of work. And therefore, don't, don't ever grow tired of doing good for others. Never grow tired of doing a work that brings about the good 
for others. It builds on what we've already said about work. It was designed by God for us to faithfully live in God's true story and reflects the nature of our creator God. And then our, so our lack of willingness to work reflects our disobedience to be used by God for the good of others. God desires and delights for all of us, young and old, to be used for the good of others. He gives us vocation, occupation. He gives us commitments and privileges. He gives us skills and experiences and talents. He gives us possessions, all to be used for the good of others. We are created to live for something much bigger than ourselves. We work teaches us that life is enormously bigger, enormously bigger than merely to take care of ourselves. Work is so much more than just you getting the things that you want. We're not simply to choose our work or our career to satisfy ourselves, but we are called to engage in a kind of work that connects us to the meeting the needs of others. And this has actually changed over the last generation, probably. It used to be where people engaged and picked a profession that would directly meet the needs of others. But now it seems that people are increasingly becoming more and more occupied where I want a job that just purely benefits me, makes me feel happy, makes me feel fulfilled. And who cares if it benefits anyone else? I want to do something that I want to do. And this work identity or work ethic that God encourages us into and Paul commands us to follow, it is a work ethic that is directly related to our identity as God's brought together people, as his family, as his church. You see, we, remember, we, we remind ourselves and reminded here that we are brought into God's family by grace and this inward working of his love and his grace in our hearts overflows into work of compassion and mercy and love for others. See, we replace this idea that church is just here to meet our needs with an idea that we are brought together by God's grace as is bound together people in a commitment of love in community with others. Nothing hurts a relationship as quickly as the mentality that the other people exist to manage the comfort and expectations of you. Nothing destroys a relationship quicker than the expectation that you exist for me. You exist for my comfort, my well-being. The grace of God shapes us into a community of people that are knit together to seek beyond our own interests to the interests of another person. And there's a time that comes in everybody's life where we must stop seeing ourselves as merely consumers of all the benefits of others and the blessings of others and instead see ourselves as instruments used by God for the good of other people. I don't know when that's supposed to happen, but it should happen in the life of every one of us. Three or four years old, I'm thinking. This is where it needs to transfer over. The bi <laughs> Here's the biblical ethic of work. The biblical ethic of work is this. The biblical ethic of work, it might be one of the greatest means that God uses to protect us from becoming utterly self-centered people. Work is a grace from God to protect us from becoming utterly self-centered. Do you see work and the energy and labor that you spend each day, both mentally and physically and emotionally, 
as, as a gift so that God is guarding you from making your life all about you? If you win the lottery, do not quit your job. What's the first thing you do if you win the lottery? I'm, I'm no more work. As if work is something, just a means to an end of getting the things that you want. And now you don't need work anymore because you have all the money. True or false? People who win the lottery ruin their lives. It's true. It is true. We know this. It's been documented for many years. But that's the first thing that goes, isn't it? The first dream and the first thing that goes, if people say, uh, if I win the lottery, what's the first thing you do? You know, you rip off the proverbial, you know, apron and storm out of your job. I'm going to quit my job and travel the world and think of no one but myself, and now I'll finally have the means to be the completely and utterly self-centered person I've always wanted to be. <laughs> that's what you're saying. Paul is saying, work is a grace. Work is a grace from God and a means to guard us from becoming miserable people. Do not pray to win the lottery. There's a work that is designed to serve one's own interests. Paul talks about that as well. It is a work that is highly self-promoting and it disrupts the peace of the community. And Paul calls these people busybodies. There are, there are two clear problems when it comes to work from this passage. One, there are some who refuse to work. And two, there are some who work really, really hard, but benefit no one. And Paul says they're busy, but they're busy bodies. What's the difference between someone who's busy and a busy body? A busy body is useless to advance God's purposes in the lives of other people. Useless to encourage, useless to build up, useless to work in such a way that meets the needs of others. A busybody, busy yeah, you know what I'm talking about. A busybody, <laughs> say that 10 times fast. It, they draw attention to themselves in their work rather than serving others. Their work is, is, is orchestrated and meant to, to make their reputation great, to bring glory to themselves, to bring a, attention to themselves and make their self-promotion and branding bigger. They're busybodies. And that's why Paul encourages us to do not get tired in doing good for others. Do not grow tired or weary in doing good for others. When disaster takes place, we delight in doing good for others. When friends struggle financially, we delight in doing good for others. When we have something that could be of use to another person, we delight in doing good for others. And so a simple question for all of us might be this when it relates to our work. How might the, your talents, your possessions, your occupation and ability be used to bring about God's good purpose in the lives of other people? Do those things. Think deeply on the, the gifts and talents that God has given to you, the experiences in vocation or in, in work, and how can you use those things to meet a specific need in our culture, in our neighborhoods, in our world, in the lives of other people, and give yourself to that and do not grow tired in doing good. Because God has, has gifted you with the resources that you need in order to do good, to meet the needs of other people. And when we think like this, Paul tells us it creates peace. It creates peace in our family, in our community. It creates peace in our world. When we have work and responsibilities in our home, 
and we change our mentality from grumbling and wishing we didn't have to do that, but rather in taking care of one another, we create peace in the home. Whenever we talk about work, we also need to talk about rest. Because we've talked about today that the discipline of work is core to the Christian identity, right? That's what Paul is saying. He's like, I command you in these things. Uh, the discipline of work is core to the life of the believer. And now I'm going to say something that may seem confusing in light of what we've been saying this morning. The discipline of rest from our work is also core to the life of a believer. At creation, God did all his work and all of his striving, and he ceased from his striving at the end of his work. And at the cross, we see that Jesus did all of his striving and all of his work, and then he rested from his work on the cross as he ascended into heaven. Jesus' perfect work for us in his life, death, and resurrection is the basis of our ultimate rest from our striving and our work to be accepted by God. Here is what Jesus prays in John 17. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus worked. And on the cross, when he died on the cross, where we see God's love poured out for us in Jesus Christ, one of his final phrases that he uttered was what? It is finished. What is finished? You, you, yeah, his work. You say it is finished when you're done with your job. It's finished. Jesus is saying it is finished. What is finished? All of the work that Jesus had to do to secure the redemption and salvation of his people. And he fulfilled the work perfectly. And he was faithful to giving himself, pouring out his life for the good of others. And then when he died on the cross, he said, it's done. My work is done. Our ability to work for the good of others and our ability to rest from work is intimately tied to our ability to rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross for us. It means we don't have to worship our work. We don't have to make work our identity. And therefore, when we fail or struggle in our work, it doesn't change our position with God because we look to Jesus and his perfect work. No longer do we need to feel paralyzed by our performance, by what people think of you, or by, by our achievements or accomplishments or our success, or by our ability to control our circumstances in our work. Jesus assures us that no matter how hard we work and how difficult our work is, even in spite of our failures, his finished work establishes our peace forever. And when we truly rest in Jesus and his work, it makes us not worse workers or poorer workers. It actually makes us harder working workers. It makes us better workers because now we're motivated by a different story. We're motivated to delight in God, to bless others. And we say, how can I work harder for the good of others? Thank you, God, for the grace of work. So in closing, and that's not one of those preacher in closings where I talk 15 more minutes. Whatever your work is today, whatever your work is tomorrow, whatever your work is this week, we are meant to think of two things. Our imitation, how we imitate God and, de and delight in being like him. And we are meant to think of our joy in doing good for others.
whatever your work, delight in him.